0: You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church.
1: So, Jen, why were you mocking my shirt?
0: Well, you just have a unique fashion sense, which involves <laughs> wearing toothpaste. Okay, <laughs> I'm just gonna say I, I, you, it's you, just an accessory I hadn't seen before. Okay.
1: You're telling you're telling me that. <laughs> did you see the toothpaste before you, you left, left the, the house? house. What? Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> I cannot tell a lie. I 100% saw the toothpaste, but here's the deal. When you're when you are brushing your teeth, right? And you get your toothpaste on your shirt and you're like, "Man, I, I've already got this shirt on. I've gone through all the work." My thought was, I'm just committed to this Kyle, now. It
0: is a black shirt. With white
1: toothpaste. You know what? All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags.
0: It looks almost yeah, like it almost, <laughs> almost looks like a priest's garb at this point, with well, the, right where you landed it, right there in the middle.
1: Well, I was aiming Priesthood for that. Priesthood of all believers. Well, um, okay, clothing choices aside, because I do have opinions about what both of you are wearing. I'm not going to share them for podcast consumption right now. I
0: feel like I think we look great. I think so too. Well, yeah. well done.
1: Of course. Okay, so today we're talking about the doctrine of creation. And um, let's just go ahead and get it out there. Many of you saw this episode and your first thought was, here we go. Mm -hmm. Finally, the Village Church is trying to answer some of the hard-hitting questions about the doctrine of creation. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we are probably not going to give you all of the answers that you're looking for. We're not even going to aim to give you all the answers you're looking for. We think that there are a set of questions that are more valuable to ask and yet are rarely asked about the doctrine of creation. And so we're going to jump right into that. And we're going to begin by asking kind of what are the key elements in our doctrine of creation? So JT, Jen, what are the non-negotiables for you when you're thinking through a Christian doctrine of creation? Well,
0: the first two that come to mind are that God created and then it was an orderly work. I think those are the two probably main points to take away from the creation account, but they're often not where we start. And when you start with those and you keep God as the focus of that narrative all the way through, it it's just gonna change the way that you read and understand that particular portion of scripture. And reading and understanding that particular portion of scripture is I can't think of a more foundational passage to our understanding of the rest of scripture. So I, I'd say those two key points, but not limited to those.
2: Yeah, just maybe kind of piggybacking off that, um, the creator-creature distinction is really important in a doctrine right. of creation, that he is the creator. Everything else is his creation. I would also say maybe two more things. I hold pretty firmly to a doctrine of, they call it creation ex nihilo, or from nothing. Right. So there was nothing that existed. Uh, along with God or beside God or before God, he was the only thing that exists being the creator. And he just speaks things into Mm -hmm. being, he doesn't just merely
1: shape and form things. Why is that important? The, the word related aspect of creation?
2: Uh, the, I mean, I I think the most important reason is, is that's what the Bible says, right? It just says that he speaks things into existence that God spoke and was, and then we could also talk about the importance of this term logos or word related to uh, Christ and this, he's right. the one through whom all things are created. Well, uh, I
0: think it's going to be important too, for our understanding of the doctrine of salvation because, because salvation is ex nihilo. Mm-hmm. It's a, we're new creations and he speaks the word and where there was no righteousness, now there's the righteousness of Christ. So if we don't get that right in Genesis, we can get fuzzy on it when we move into these further doctrines.
2: That's good. And maybe the last thing I would say is, and this is going to be kind of a challenging term, but it's the doctrine of God's aseity mm. or the idea that there's there's nothing that God depends on for, for his existence. Right. Like he is not, uh, you know, before he creates like needing some kind of sustenance or right. something to help him exist. He just exists because he is in need of absolutely
1: nothing in creation. So God is the only uncreated being. That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's immensely helpful. Um, I I think for me, one of the non-negotiables that hasn't come up and you guys have, I think, offered some, ones that are very helpful, is the historicity of Adam and Eve. Yeah, um, And so for for me, when I'm looking at the Christian story, Adam's role is of such consequence, particularly on two fronts. The first one is that I, I have a hard time finding where we would locate the Imago day if not in a literal Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of different theories out there about, well, you know, uh, God bestowed the image on an evolved man. I have some serious issues with that because it makes the image of God continue On a developmental status. Mm -hmm. And there are some significant sanctity of human life issues around that. Yeah, that's good. So the Imago Dei being a a huge, crucial aspect of our doctrine of creation, I think that's a non negotiable. And it's hard to get that, I think, without a historical Adam and Eve. And then the other part is the transmission of sin, Mm -hmm. right? Is the fall, original sin. And it's clear that the New Testament's concept of salvation falls apart without a literal Adam. If he's not there, if Adam and Eve are not there, then uh, I don't know that the New Testament perspective on salvation is actually going to hold up because it's very contingent on Adam's and role. And
2: several New Testament authors, Jesus himself in his speech, Paul, Romans chapter 5, is assuming, I think, just clearly and explicitly an original Adam or a, 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 this one man who existed that didn't evolve from some
1: kind of other being. Yeah. When we when we jump into Genesis chapter 1, I'll just read these first two verses for us, just kind of orient our discussion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so it begins with, in the beginning. So I think it kind of begs the question immediately, uh, JT, where was God in the beginning? When was God? What was he doing
2: it seems like one of the questions that would come up as soon as you read these verses: "Where was God and when was God?" And I think the answer is there was no where and there was no when. I mean, that's the whole point of it. Hey, wow, yeah. Let's stop yeah, and think about yeah, that. Yeah, I for feel like a my second. hair just got—I yeah.
1: don't have much hair left, but I feel like it just got blown Somebody back. Just veered off the road. <laughs> right. <but>
2: what? <clears throat> uh, yes. I mean, when we are trying to say that God is, I say that He is the Creator. There, there couldn't have been a where and there couldn't have been a when. We're talking mm-hmm. about before the creation of anything. This is this. Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit who was eternally existing in himself and enjoying mm. this perfect communion forever in eternity past. And so when we think about creation, we're thinking about the beginning of the where and the beginning of the when. And before that, there was no where and no
1: when. And so what was God doing?
2: <laughs> Wait a minute. I've never – <laughs> You know, I don't know. So one of the things I love about, about – it's like one of my favorite theologians. It's Calvin. Um, of course, there's weaknesses to some of his theology, but some of his strengths is, is he's allowing the Bible to, to kind of paint him into a corner. He'll say everything the Bible says and stop there. We never want to say more than what Scripture's saying, and we never want to say less. And so I think that when, when we're asked questions like that, what was God doing before creation? The Bible doesn't give us a lot of data. We Mm. just know that he was, uh, we know that he would have been enjoying uh, life in himself. He would have been enjoying fellowship between father, son, and spirit. But much more than that, I think I'm hesitant to, but you're flipping your Bible. So that makes me think you're like, oh yeah, you've never read this verse. Here we go.
1: No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying.
0: Okay. I'm just going to keep score over here while you guys go back
1: and no, no, no. I think that know, uh, I appreciate your answer so much, especially when we're trying to get ourselves to ask the right questions, as opposed that's to just good. assuming yeah. Yeah. that, like, oh yeah, here are the questions that must be answered because the question, the Bible's not just giving us like, hey, these are the answers. It's also giving us these are the most important questions. questions. That's, really that's good. right. And Genesis one <laughs> is focusing in on that. And so I do think that there is uh, when we're looking at. Our doctrine of creation and asking the question, what was God doing before the world? I think one of the things that theologians have traditionally tried to articulate here is Trinitarian fellowship. Yep. Mm-hmm. That God was right. satisfied in and of himself. This is, you know, uh, sometimes what we call, and we've talked about on the podcast before, on the, our discussion on the Trinity, we talk about as the imminent or mm-hmm. the ontological Trinity. Mm-hmm where God is uh, in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think about Jesus's words in the high priestly prayer, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. When Jesus is asking that he uh, he and the Father would be, uh, uh, that the disciples would be one with the Father as he and the Father Mm -hmm. were one. And I think that that's important to remember that the Son of God is in communion with the Father, And with the spirit and the spirits in communion with the father and the son, the father's in communion with the son and the spirit. And so when we're, I think the thing that I want, why I want to stay on this question a little bit longer and why I pressed a little bit is because there is a popular misunderstanding around why God created that emerges from a misunderstanding about what God was doing prior, which is that God created because of some need, divine Mm -hmm. loneliness, There was a,
0: there was an us shaped hole in the heart of God. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And so, you know, God would not have been complete unless Mm -hmm. he created us. Mm -hmm. And I think that we just want to, we want to be careful with that because it calls into question the very thing that we've already talked about, which is the aseity of God. Right, That's not just that he's self-existent and self-sustaining. He's self-satisfied. That's good.
0: Yeah. And that's an interesting, I mean, I think that's a, that's a way of thinking thinking about the scriptures is a way of wanting to read the scriptures that offers a false sense of comfort to people because they think if I can sort of make me bigger in the text that's going to make me feel better about things and really consistently throughout the scriptures when when our vision of God grows it's when we learn true comfort so mm-hmm. that's a, been an interesting you know just like in teaching Genesis telling people, hey, guess what? He, he didn't create because he was lonely for you. At first sounds like a deflating statement. Like it sounds like the kind of thing that cranky Calvinists say, mm-hmm. but I actually teach it because I think it's freeing and beautiful, you right. know, that because if God needed me, right, I'm going to let him down. Right, and right. so that's not a good formula to live my life by. It takes the pressure off, but also if he needs anything, right? that's the thing that can control him. Because, yeah, We don't want locking. God to be, manipulated, right. to be able to be manipulated by some need.
2: I don't want to take us down a, a rabbit hole here, but I think this is a really helpful point, even as it relates to the, the relationship between creation and salvation. Uh, if god doesn 't create out of something that he 's lacking right. or needing he
0: doesn't we also save want to say he need. doesn't save out he of his needs. good mm-hmm. he
2: does it out of his good pleasure He set right. his affections on his church uh, and on us and mm-hmm. on individual people uh, as He calls us out of darkness into his kingdom not because He needed us but because he loves us right and for some people when we when we i think when they want to communicate that God needed us or something like that, they 're trying to communicate his they're trying to communicate his love for us. Right. But it, what it actually does is it, I think it removes or takes away or diminishes his love for us. He loves us not because he needs us, but because he simply loves us and set his affections on us. That's
1: good. So we've been talking a little bit about um, some of the non-negotiables, but also how oftentimes we bring a set of questions that the— account is just not looking to answer. So whenever we think about treating Genesis 1 and uh, Genesis 1 through 11, but Genesis 1 in particular, when we think about treating it rightly, it begs the question, who was the original audience of the creation account and how should that shape the way that we read Genesis 1 and, and Genesis 1 through 11, but particularly Genesis 1, Jen?
0: Yeah, I think this is something that's at least in my coming up through the church and, and hearing this taught. It was something that I never heard until adulthood, and then you're like, oh, "Okay, that that feels really important." Right. Um, so you know, the New Testament, Jesus in particular, attributes authorship of the first five books of the Bible to Moses, and it's commonly held that these were written during the wandering in the wilderness. So in between the time when when Israel's called out of Egypt and then enters into the promised land. And so what Moses is doing is he's writing to give the nation of Israel a set of roots, like where they came from, this is where you came from. And then he's also giving them shoots. He's showing them, this is how you're going to move forward. So that's why you have the history and the law, right? And this right. is how you're now going to live. This is how you please the Lord who's brought you out of slavery. And when you think about what the critical issue would have been for them at that point, it's you've just come out of a dualistic slash polytheistic um, religious system in Egypt. That's all you've ever known uh, in contrast to your beliefs. And now you're going into Canaan, which is polytheistic. What do you most need to keep in view? There is no God but God, right? right. And so that's the, whole, the if you want one overarching message for the first five books of the Bible, it's that. And right. so then we read the creation account. In light of that, and it begins to make sense why we see the God of the universe ordering the sun, moon, and the star, the very things that these cultures worshiped are being shown to not just be uh, in subjection to him, but that he is their origin.
1: Right. So that's almost more of like seeing Genesis 1 as an argument against the false gods of Egypt. Right. Is that accurate? And Canaan, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So here is... God revealing himself to Moses and uh, subsequently to his people, Israel. And it's, I just want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly, because I think this is a big point. I don't want us to miss this, that what you're saying is that when we read Genesis one, we need to be reading it as a group of people who have just been freed from the bondage and the tyranny Mm -hmm. of false gods. Right. And that Genesis one should be read. Uh, in light of that consideration of that God is saying, no, 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 there's not a, a God of the moon and a God of the stars and a God of the land and a God of the water. I created it all. Mm-hmm. Am I understanding you rightly?
0: Yeah, I, I, the way that I try to say it is that what God, God is not merely saying you will worship no other gods but me. He is, that's a, the like the, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me is because there are no other gods. And so it's an invitation into reality is what it is. Not just a, hey, you need to give all your worship to me. It's saying there is nothing else that is worthy of worship. And so um, that's gonna shape the way that we read this too. It's just, it, and, and as, as New Testament believers, obviously we can look at this and find, parallels for the ways that we have set our worship on other things. And the call is always back to reality that you're living, uh, you know, like as James would say, you're the double-minded man mm. or you're, 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 you're not, you're out of your mind basically right. to worship things other than the only thing that is worthy of our worship.
1: This is really interesting. It gets at maybe one of the fundamental divides between the original audience and us. And maybe why we end up asking a set of questions that the text isn't interested in is because in the ancient near East, what God is demonstrating is a true supernatural account in the face of dominant false supernatural accounts of the world. So a lot of times, a lot of the questions that Christians end up asking of Genesis 1 are questions of we believe in this supernatural account, but the dominant cultural understanding of the world is a natural account of how the world came to be. And yet that's not the context Mm -hmm. of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, it's like nobody there is assuming that the world came to be by any kind of natural role. The ancient Near Eastern mythology on creation is deep and richly textured. And so Israel is emerging and they're offering a competing and a uh, a more compelling compelling, and a truthful supernatural account of creation, not trying to, uh, you know, T-bone naturalist accounts that are out there. So a lot of times when we come to the text and we're like, okay, how does this defeat the, you know, evolutionary argument, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's not in the minds of the original audience. And it's not something the text is really answering specifically.
0: Right. Not only that, but the text is doing what, you know, we see done throughout history. It is it's it's co-opting a, a literary form and a rhythm that was familiar to its listeners, right? So he's he's sort of for lack of a better word, riffing off of other creation narratives yeah. that are yeah. out there. And when Christians hear that, a lot of times they're like, "What? Yeah. The Bible is a rip-off work?" And it's that's not the way we should be thinking about that. We if you think about like all of the, you know, the 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 statements of the that were a product of the American Revolution, you know, like the Declaration of Independence is co-opting a form and using it to say a truer thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's what we see in Genesis. In no way diminishes the beauty of the text or the inspiration of the text. It, it just explains it for us in a way that we might not have otherwise seen it.
2: Which is a beautiful picture, even of who, I mean, when we think about how God reveals himself, not only does the revelation himself reveal God, but how he does it reveals right. who Excellent. he is. Yeah. Yes. And here he is, he's revealing himself in a way, in, in a way of knowing that the people he's revealing himself to were familiar with. Right. He makes himself, making himself accessible through their senses. That's good. It, which, is, which is just something that should remind us that God accommodates mm-hmm. to our ways of knowing and our ways of understanding.
1: That's good. So we've talked about what some of the essentials are of the doctrine of Christian creation. What, what do you believe are some of the most neglected aspects of a Christian doctrine of creation? I'll, I'll, I'll kick us off. Jump in. Okay. So one of the things that I, um, I often find is neglected here is the... Difference between Genesis one and Genesis two in perspective. Mm-hmm. That like a lot of people struggle with, like, whoa, what is the why does Genesis one say this and Genesis two feels a little bit different? It does feel a little bit different because it's a matter of perspective. And so when you're reading Genesis one, I like to say Genesis one is creation from thirty thousand feet, mm-hmm. right? It's this it's big the drone shot. Yes, that's well, that's a great picture. Um, and uh, leave it to Jen to just like <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm offering what I think is a helpful insight, and Jen gives one <clears throat> sentence for the thirty minutes of me talking. And She's no. like, yeah, that's better. Hashtag
0: um, toothpaste. Oh uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. Okay. It's one of those days, yeah, Jen. It, it, I think it, it is. I think it'll come <laughs> back too. Um so creation is from 30,000 feet in Genesis 1, to, uh, Genesis one. but in Genesis 2, you get creation from breathing distance. Mm. I mean, God is breathing life into Adam and Eve. He's right there with them. Uh, and so I love that difference. And I feel like a lot of misunderstandings around Genesis 1 and 2 and their relationship and what they're aiming to do, like what the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 are, are so vastly different. But we feel like, oh, we got to reconcile these things. No, they're actually demonstrating two beautiful realities about who God is. He's transcendent. He's high above separate Mm -hmm. from his creation he has created all things he's lord over all things and he's imminent he's right here near to us and i love that difference but it's often neglected what about you guys
2: I think as soon as we get past Genesis one and two and start reading the rest of the Bible, we can begin, uh, we can forget some of the really important things that the text says, specifically the goodness of creation. We can begin reading some other things in the Bible about being worldly or of the flesh and immediately begin thinking anything that's a part of creation must be evil, wicked, bad, and unhelpful. And this is an unchristian way of thinking about the the physical order or the created world because God says it was good Mm -hmm. and these are good things. And so there's other accounts of the world, like Platonic accounts, or for the for the early Christians, Gnostic accounts, which viewed all uh, kind of materiality or things that existed in a, in kind of a material sense as bad or evil or wicked things that should be escaped from. So salvation even was viewed as something that we were escaping from created reality. And when we look at the Bible, uh, something that can be neglected often in Christian teaching uh, from the Bible is that God intends to save not just spiritual things or immaterial Mm -hmm. things, but physical things because physical things themselves are good. And so when we're talking about a doctrine of creation, we should uh, emphasize properly that God's creation is good because God calls it good.
1: We live in a possession and money obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit Guide to Gospel generosity dot com. That's Guide to Gospel generosity dot com. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life study Bibles for women and the Courage for Life study Bibles for men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible.
0: There are so many implications from that. I feel oh, like man. we should do a whole podcast on that. Right. I had a lot of
1: questions while I was talking about it.
0: Well, just the whole, you know, you think about how prevalent is the idea of it's all going to burn, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's all going to burn, but it's actually all going to be redeemed. Right. And, and then you think about how that changes If And, I, you know, again, it's this. I think it's Andy Crouch who says, we, we often have a functional Bible that starts in Genesis 3, right? Mm, and yeah. then ends in Revelation 20. 20 yeah. Doesn't get us to the the, the redemption of the creation mm-hmm. and, the, and the goodness of the creation at the beginning. And then we get all locked up about even enjoying God's good gifts yes. in the sense that they're still available to us now because it feels like we're being disloyal to a heavenly kingdom right. to enjoy uh, a, an earthly kingdom when um, there is a way to to worship through these things that are still good, although not perfectly so in in the existing creation. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And we can't talk about a Christian doctrine of creation without spending a few minutes on the doctrine of the Imago Dei or the image of God, mm-hmm. Genesis 1, So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And I think when people hear that phrase image of God, I remember hearing it as a kid growing up in a youth group thinking like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. That I like look like God? Because that's kind of weird. Like, and I think sometimes we really just assume that people understand what we mean by image of God. And so I'd like for us to spend a few minutes. What does it mean that people are created in the image of God?
2: First, I hope we do at least a whole podcast on this later. Can okay. we, can we commit to that right now? Yes. Uh, like a spit pack or a blood oath? Uh, whichever it would be in Genesis. <laughs> what, what would the ancient readers? <laughs> I have think on? a <laughs> blood
0: oath sounds more in line uh, with their style. Yeah.
2: That
1: or a pinky <laughs> promise
2: maybe. Yeah. We could do a Yeah. That was probably in the text. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think I can find a commentary that says something like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm sure you can. Um. What are we talking about? Image bearing. <laughs> yes. We're on image bearing. Uh, yeah. So this, in terms of in terms of biblical theology and systematic theology, I don't think we could emphasize the importance of of uh, an account for the image of God more seriously or significantly. Um, so I mean, one of the first things that typically theologians have said in the past is this relates to humanity's rationality or physical appearance, their ability to reason, those kinds of things. And while I don't think those things are wrong, I think they're missing the point of the text. I think the point of the text in Genesis 1 and 2 as it relates to image bearing is these, this man and this woman are God's representatives to all of creation. They're meant to, to be what God is like to his creation. They're supposed to cultivate and take dominion and, 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 Ultimately, I think the text would also use the term icon. These are the icons of God. And as the as the rest of creation looks at humanity, they see what God is like. Mm.
0: You, Yeah, you really helped me with this. I remember we had a discussion about this about a year ago where I, you know, like I'll think I have it all straight in my head. And then I start to realize the more I try to press into it, the, the fuzzier it gets. And that whole distinction, that was what I had always heard in the church was, well, the difference between us and the animals is that we're sentient or that we're, right. you know, and, and, and to to be able to see it as, oh no, 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 it's that we reflect him in a limited way. uh, Because I think, you know, people hear that when they hear that we're supposed to bear his image, it's like, so then you get into this whole, what would Jesus do cycle of, I'm gonna be exactly like Jesus, which I mean, we are supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ, which is who is the perfect image bearer. That's the key here. Um, But because he's the God man, there's a level of confusion around that too. Like, I, can you help me, JT? We're still in the middle of floundering here, I feel like, yeah. In my well, head. I mean,
2: I can, I can try, and Colin, I've spent some time talking about this too. I mean, so we want to say that Adam and Eve, their original intention was to, you said reflect, that's mm-hmm. a really helpful word, or represent, represent God's yeah. presence to his creation of course, as we find in Genesis 3, rather than reflecting God, they they reflect an antichrist. And Mm -hmm. so the whole picture of the story of salvation is that God sends another representative that reflects his image. So Colossians 1 speaks of Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So if you want to know what God is like, don't look to the Adam and Eve figures that we all represent, rather look to Jesus Christ. He's the one worthy of worship, honor, and praise because he perfectly represents God because he is the second Adam. He is the one who who does what Adam should have done
1: and acts the way Adam and Eve should have acted?
0: I love some of the writing that calls him the new human. Yes,
1: yeah, and to also think that right now, uh, I, I don't know who said this; it's not for me, um, but that there is uh, there is a, f- uh, a fully God, fully man person at the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. Like, like there is mm-hmm. a fully human mm-hmm. person ruling and reigning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we think about like, I thought about this
2: this just this past Sunday when we were when we were worshiping here. Uh, at the village. And I thought to myself, we were singing a song that was giving adoration and praise to Jesus. And we're not, again, we're not giving some praise to some uh, spiritual man that exists in the heavens, but rather a man. Like Jesus of Nazareth, the man who who uh, grew up in Galilee and has a Northern Galilean accent and who had mud on his feet from walking around, uh, an, embodied from man. an embodied man, yeah. he is in the heavens now, which shows number one, the goodness of creation that humanity can exist in a relationship with God and that he is God's
1: representative to us and in another sense, our representative to God. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, uh, when we talk about in training program, the story of scripture, we think, we say that the story of scripture is God is establishing his kingdom. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Through dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. Mm-hmm. And dominion and dynasty are a huge part of that. It's not just that God has come to dwell with us. It's that he has entrusted Adam and Eve, uh, humanity, as vice regents, as royal stewards, is the language we use in the training program. And so a, a massive aspect, maybe the central aspect of our, our image bearing, is ruling and reigning mm-hmm. like our Lord and Savior. Um and so
2: and taking dominion or establishing or seeing the kingdom set up on every part of God's
0: creation.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. That's well, rich.
0: You know, and everybody's always want like the number one request I get to teach a Bible study is will you teach on revelation. You cannot you? understand. <laughs> Heck no. <laughs> you cannot understand you can't have any hope of even starting into revelation without spending significant time in Genesis. Yeah. Because now you hear you know, this whole conversation we've just had about Jesus Christ in the heavens right now, that's Revelation 21. That's yes. the dwelling place of God is with man. I mean, it's, it's already and it's not yet, yeah, right? And, and it will come, we will be as he is. Mm-hmm.
2: And he's bringing that heavenly city down to the earth. To the earth. Yeah. To establish a new Eden, mm-hmm. a new beautiful city in
1: which we rule and reign on God's behalf mm-hmm. for eternity. Guys, we went from creation to revelation today. Wow. Boom. Man, they say it can be done and we did it. Collective mic drop, boom. <laughs> oh. Okay, well, um, I want us to maybe spend a few minutes here at the end, and JT and Jen were looking at me. I think they thought if they talked long enough, I would not ask these last questions. (laughs) Okay, like I think there was collusion happening. People want to talk about the when, the where, and how long of creation. And so let's just put it on the table. JT, if somebody asks you, hey, how old is the earth? Yeah, my first answer
2: is I don't know. I think it's old. You think it's old. <laughs> I think it's old. Okay, <laughs> Older
1: than you. Older, Definitely older than me. That's a true mm-hmm. answer. Yeah. Okay. Is that okay to say I don't know? No, I think it's okay to say that you don't know. Okay. I think so. I think people probably are like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> they're, re- they're really bummed by this at this point. They thought this is where the energy was going <laughs> to come. But mm-hmm. what do you think, Jen? I'm sure you've got, you've taught Genesis. You have gotten probably yeah. 20 emails with this question.
0: Yeah, I, I don't tell where I stand, um, because it, because I'm a Bible teacher. If I give my position and you disagree with it, you won't listen to the rest of what we need to learn about Genesis. And I don't love that that's where the dialogue is, but it often is. So I don't tell my position, but I, what I do is I press people. If you have a position you hold too firmly, you for darn sure better make sure that you have spent a lot of time looking at the opposing views because what I think is the common um, position people come in with um, is that they know theirs, right? but they haven't studied anybody else's. And that's just, that's, you don't actually hold that position strongly if that's where you come from. So I'm like, it's fine for you to say, this is what I think is true, but it needs to be that you've really looked into it.
2: And Kyle, I want to hear your answer to this too, but I think the reason that's really important, Jen, is because at the beginning of this episode, we talked about the non-essential or the essentials. This is a non-essential. This is is something that we have the opportunity to engage in charitable dialogue, agree to disagree. We don't get to do that around the creator creature distinction or the aseity of God. And Mm -hmm. so this is an answer. One of the reasons I kind of say it in jest, I don't know is because yeah, I I have a position But it's not nearly as important for me to emphasize as the things that we think are essential.
0: Yeah, I think a lot, you know, for years, this was only discussed in terms of being a science text, basically, and it just is not a science text. So if we have not looked at it for what it is, because we've spent so much time wrapped around the axle about these other questions, then we're, we're bad students of the Bible. So I'm happy to talk about those other things, but we got to get to what's most important because how can we possibly hope to hold one of those positions with any uh, conviction if we haven't first answered the questions that the text is asking and answering?
1: Agree 100%. Wait, you're not getting off the hook here. What do you
0: think? Yeah, Kyle.
1: Well, well oh, of course. So I have to show up and give you my position, even mm-hmm. though that neither of you guys are question. playing coy. I mean, I, I, I think that what both of you guys are hitting on is wise. And I think that one of the things that's prudent here is to remember that the distinctiveness of the Christian view of creation does not come from any measurable. It comes from the fundamental reality that Yahweh has created all things. Right. So everybody, any position on the market, Christian or non-Christian, will have a position on when and how and where right? Mm-hmm. But we have a position on why mm. that is distinctive mm-hmm. and who that is distinctive. That's good. And so keeping the main thing, the main thing in Genesis one and two in particular, I think focuses us to see that the distinctiveness of the Christian position on creation is not in the number of days, not in the length of those days or when those days occurred in time and space. But there is a God who stands outside of any of those constraints and above it all, and who has created everything and yet condescends to come to meet with us. So,
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm willing to be talked out of my position or to say that I could be but I'm not willing to be talked out of the things that you Absolutely. just said.
1: Absolutely. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're gonna be talking with Dr. Jonathan Pennington, the author of The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing about the greatest sermon ever preached. See you next time. It's grace and peace.